Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel of New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben. Today, we're talking to Ian Proven. Ian is the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies at Regent College in Vancouver. And we're going to be talking to Ian about his new book, The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture, published by Baylor University Press last year, 2017. Ian, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be on the show. Great. Well, listen, can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we start talking about the book itself? Uh, Yes, indeed. Um, I am a Scot by origin. I grew up near Glasgow and was educated uh, initially in that region, including an undergraduate degree at the University of Glasgow. And then I uh, went down to England for a bit, studied at London Bible College, what is now the London School of Theology, uh, worked in the church for a couple of years, and then went back uh, to do postgraduate study at the University of Cambridge. And after that, taught in a number of British universities before coming to Canada in 1997. Very good. And your academic career has been focused to a large extent on Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, and also the issue of hermeneutics, I believe. Yeah, I've written pretty broadly on that at this point, a um, number of commentaries at, at a very detailed level, a l- l- number of larger books thinking about Bible and issues, Bible and culture, and probably most um, one of the ones that I'm particularly pleased with, with more recently would be Seriously Dangerous Religion, what the Old Testament really says and why it matters, just by way of example. Very good, great. Well, the book we're talking about today is a book called The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture. It's fair to say this is a very big book, uh, over 700 pages. Uh, It's also an incredibly learned book. Um, How did you come to write this book? Well, I've become quite concerned in the last number of years about the what I think of as the fragmenting nature of Protestant hermeneutics and the way in which the Bible is still given a central place in many present churches, at least theoretically, but is not actually, you know, being read in necessarily very serious ways, uh, not informing people's faith, particularly the Old Testament, in very serious ways. And so this is really an attempt to restate um, in a constructive way uh, a Protestant way of looking at the Bible, which I still profoundly believe believe in. Now, you, obviously, you published the Bible in 2017, the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing his 95 theses to the castle door in Wittenberg. In a way, you're doing the same thing as him, aren't you? 
Um, kind of, although it's a little strange to think about being put in the same bracket as Martin Luther. But I'm certainly wanting to say that the, a lot of Luther's in, insights, most fundamental insights, and those of the other magisterial reformers remain, I think, valid and important. But of course, I'm not simply reduplicating Luther or Calvin because we live now in the 21st century and that that ought to make some difference. Why, why is it that the question how to read the Bible has become so difficult? Well, I think there are many reasons um, for that. Um, I think the fundamental nature of the Bible, of course, as a library of books, a large story with many twists and turns and so on, requires great attentiveness and um, there are just there have always been many ways in which people have rather gone off track it seems to me and I think a lot of it's got to do with the the very nature of of the material it requires attention it requires hard work and to be honest I, I think that in these days of five second attention spans and all the rest of it that the the seriousness with which people are reading uh, leaves a lot to be desired. So that's at least one compelling reason, I think. Hmm. At the beginning of the book, you outline, I think, four different uh, approaches that are well enculturated within Protestant churches. Uh, the method of historical criticism, postmodernity, Chicago statement approaches, and then something which you call counter-reformation Protestantism. Could you talk us through what each of these approaches is, how they developed, and where they yes. might fall short in terms of your argument. Yes, indeed. I, I had to try and simplify the argument, structurally speaking, because as you say, it is a big book and it covers a lot of ground. So I hit on these four broad, broad approaches as a way of trying to highlight the main issues. So the historical critical approach is really the modernist approach arising, seriously arising in the 19th century, um, which is looking to analyze texts uh, really in quite an atomistic way, usually placing bits of text against historical backgrounds and, and very interested in sources and all the rest of that. Uh, the postmodern uh, sort of developments from that uh, of course, are, are marked by a greater emphasis on subjectivity over against uh, an agreed objectivity. And although it may seem surprising at first that this has influenced the church, it, it actually has in many quarters to, to a rather damaging extent, I think. The Chicago Statement approach, I'm not sure whether your British listeners would be so familiar with this, but certainly in North America, we have this uh, Chicago Statement on Hermeneutics, which is uh, a kind of, uh, I would see it as a kind of reactionary, not very well thought through way of a number of proposals about dealing with modernity and postmodernity. But I think it leaves a lot to be desired. And then the counter-reformational position, which is certainly a label that probably those in it wouldn't accept. But anyway, I think it's accurate as a descriptor. This is really an attempt to get back behind the Reformation and to suggest that we went wrong uh, uh, really just before the Reformation in our Bible reading, and we need to recapture how Christians you know, in ancient times read the Bible. Uh, so broadly speaking, those are the four big ideas, I guess. You, you propose an alternative to each of these four, an alternative you describe as a seriously literal approach. What, what does that mean? Well, um, 
The word literal, of course, is a, is a word that's often thrown around, but it's not clear to me that people often think through what they mean by it. So the adjective seriously is meant to uh, indicate that we, we have to do a serious job of reading, reading literally. So there's a whole chapter in the book which tries to parse that out. And, and what I'm suggesting there is that what people often call literal reading doesn't really deserve that title because it's really wooden reading that's not paying serious attention to what I call the communicative intent of the text. So seriously literal means attending to the communicative intent of the text. That's mm. the quickest way of saying it, I think. Great, great. Can, can, can readers do that without knowing original languages? Well, I mean, the reformers themselves uh, thought that if you had a good translation, you, you could certainly make a very good go of it. And that's what I think, too. I mean, our modern translations, um, the, the more the, the ones that seriously try to represent the original languages are very, very helpful. And to a very great extent, yes, people can uh, read the Bible seriously, seriously, literally using translations. But at the end of the day, it is, I think, historically and theologically significant that our scriptures are written mainly in two languages, Hebrew and Greek, with a bit of Aramaic thrown in. And in all honesty, that is the measuring stick of of translations, because every translation is also, to some extent, an interpretation. And Without uh, some knowledge of the original languages, it's really hard to get into a, a serious discussion about the merits of translations. So uh, I suppose my answer is yes and no. Yes, we, we certainly ought to try and be serious readers with the resources we have. But the expectations of the reformers were greater than that. They really urged people, all people, not just people who you know, are in, in positions of authority, whatever. They urged all people to try and, and become competent in Hebrew and Greek. Fascinating. You you divide your big argument into three parts, I suppose, three movements. The first movement is uh, entitled Before There Were Protestants. And um, in, in that section, you talk us through issues to do with canon and ecclesiology. I suppose it's one of those perennial questions, isn't it? What comes first? chicken or the egg, as you put it, the canon or the church. How, how do you think through that issue? Well, I mean, the way I think it through, and this is in response really to that fourth group, the counter-reformational people who tend to uh, who tend to emphasize the church as the context in which the canon comes to be the canon. And my response to that is, uh, again, yes and no. <laughs> of course, it's true to say that the, the whole biblical canon, including the New Testament, comes into its settled, agreed form in the course of the early history of the church. But the canon really begins long before that, um, because in the case of the Old Testament, of course, you have an early church already receiving um, the Old Testament text as their canon and measuring themselves against it, which is why there's such an emphasis in the New Testament on demonstrating that everything is as they say, in accordance with the scriptures. Um, so I think we already have a, a canon of scripture. It's not yet closed, but it's certainly a canon. You you talk a lot, uh, don't you, in those early chapters about the issue of whether the Hebrew canon is closed, the Hebrew Bible canon is closed 
in the first century. How do you think through that problem? Well, the interesting thing is I don't think it really is even as substantially a problem because there's widespread agreement, I think, among Old Testament scholars that at least the first two sections of the Old Testament canon, that what's referred to in the New Testament as the Law and the Prophets, the Pentateuch and the historical books and our prophetic books, that that's already an established, settled a uh, set of texts that become reference points for ongoing dialogue, discussion, and, and debate. And you see that reflected in the New Testament as well. The only, the only area really where there's serious dispute, I think, ongoing is with the third section of the, the Hebrew canon, the, the writings, the, the place where you have the Psalms and the Proverbs and things like that. And my judgment on that is that, in fact, I believe that that was probably entirely closed as well by the first century. But even if it wasn't, it, it, it almost was, and it doesn't become really a very serious issue. It's not as if we're we're operating in great confusion about what the canon the canon is um, in in this environment. So I suppose this is why you you say that scripture precedes the church, but's being produced in the church simultaneously. Indeed, I mean it, it precedes the church. Uh, evidently, I'm surprised that anyone may, wants to make a counter argument about that because <laughs> the New Testament clearly looks back and depends upon it in every way. And then, of course, you have the apostles uh, and the gospel writers and the apostles writing uh, for the church. And I think it's clear that what they think they are doing is exegeting the Old Testament in the light of the Christ event, and thereby they are adding uh, texts that become canonical very quickly in, in the early church because they're recognized as having the authority of the apostles uh, behind them. Hmm. Well, just thinking about what you said there, can we claim that the New Testament writers are reading the Old Testament literally? Well, again, in in large measure, I don't think there's any real dispute about this. If, if we were to make the statement in this way, that the vast majority of what the New Testament uh, texts are, are doing, the, 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 what they're mainly doing is reading literally, I think that statement would gain wide assent. Um, the real question is, to what extent are they not doing that? And uh, there are different opinions on this, but in the book, I try to demonstrate that, um, in fact, I think even in the most difficult cases, you can make a good argument that they are reading literally, if you mean by literally what I argue we ought to mean by it. And does that, does that change as we move into the post-New Testament period among the early fathers? Um, depends which early fathers you're looking at and even which writings of the early fathers you're looking at. I mean, the literal sense is still widely regarded by the church fathers as the most important, most fundamental sense, particularly when it comes to the formation of doctrine. Um, I mean, as one scholar has pointed out, all the great doctrinal debates of the early centuries really are, are focused around, around this uh, most fundamental sense. And then to some extent or another, of course, all of these early church leaders are educated in the Greco-Roman curriculum and they have, they have been, they have all of them been taught that allegorical reading is an acceptable way of reading, at least under some circumstances. And so you also find a lot of this 
uh, non-literal reading going on, and it's particularly pronounced in Alexandria among people like Origen, for example. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you read Augustine's uh, rather important treatise on Christian doctrine, and you look at what Augustine is advocating there, he's advocating substantially what, what I call literal reading. It's, it's really striking, I think, to notice that Augustine's Christian doctrine book seems to get as much attention now from people interested in the history of hermeneutics as the history of Christian doctrine itself. Um, well, yeah, it's a very strange treatise in that respect, yeah, though, because yeah. the title is fundamentally misleading. It's, yeah. it's not a book on Christian doctrine at all. It's yeah. actually a book on hermeneutics and teaching, actually, is what it is. Well, what happens after Augustine during the medieval period? Where does the literal sense of scripture go? Well, of course, in the Middle Ages, we then see lots of evolutions of these earlier trends. Um, And so, as you might expect, you see a mixture of literal reading and allegorical reading. And it depends where and when you're, you're raising the question what you discover. But there's no... I think there's no question that the allegorical approach tends to get the upper hand, particularly as we get into the High Middle Ages period. And although there are notable people pushing back against that, like Thomas Aquinas, for example, and Nicholas of Lyra, certainly by the time you get to the the, uh, the beginnings of the Reformation, you, you have a situation where the Bible is functioning in many respects under the authority, the doctrinal authority of the church and is unable to challenge it because you, it can't really challenge it allegorically because, of course, you find in the text as an allegorical reading really what you need to find in order to support the argument you want to make. So this is the, back, the immediate background to the Reformation, of course. Now, at one point in the book, you described the Reformation or, or rather Luther's realisation during the Reformation that the that the authorities he was contesting were more concerned with power than with truth. Mm-hmm. How, how does that map onto your argument about uh, hermeneutics? Well, it maps on directly because, I mean, Luther is on record as having said in retrospect that, in fact, if, if only people like Cardinal Cayetan had been prepared to argue with them and to show him from Scripture where he was wrong, he would have been very happy to give up his his new ideas, which from Cayetan's perspective, of course, were, were heretical ideas. And, and so he, he complains bitterly about this, that really they just want him to submit. They don't want to make an argument. And you see this very clearly at the Diet of Worms when Luther is called to account for his writings up to that point. And the whole Inquisition is very much based around not discussing Luther's works, but simply getting him to recant his works and to get back in line. And I think it's clear that the, there was a widespread perception in Germany that this was exactly what was going on. And it was one of the things that turned many people in, in, in Luther's direction, that they perceived that this was not about truth, but about power. And uh, they didn't like that. Now, the central section of the book, part two, uh, Now There Are Protestants, uh, takes us through a number of the pillars, I suppose, of the developing Protestant doctrine of Scripture. How much of what Protestants were saying was new? 
Well, that is a very interesting and important question because I don't actually think very much of what they were saying was new. In fact, I, I mean, I would want to be persuaded that really anything they were saying was entirely new. They themselves claimed to be standing in the tradition of the church, and they were very robust on this point. Their claim was that it was the Bishop of Rome and his cardinals and so on who had actually taken the church off track and that they were very happy to have a, a discussion on, on who stood most in line with people like Augustine. They were convinced that they did and not their opponents. And, and so I think if you look at um, things which are often thought of as new ideas like sola scriptura, you know, the primary authority of scripture, it's very, very easy to find earlier uh, um, comments about that and teaching about that in the church fathers that are really saying exactly the same thing, it seems to me, as the reformers. Hmm. What about this notion of perspicuity? Well, that would be a good example. Um, I mean, again, we want to be careful with our definitions. One of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is to actually get Protestants to repent of, of some rather unworkable and not very Protestant ideas, even when it comes to rather famous words like perspicuity or sola scriptura. So if we mean by perspicuity what the people, what the reformers meant by it, that scripture is sufficiently clear that um, the ordinary person, the ordinary literate person equipped with a good translation is not going to be misled as to the central core tenets of Christian faith, then I, I think once again you can find that idea very, very easily in the church fathers and people prior to the reformers. Because, of course, if something is not sufficiently clear, it can't function as a primary authority. So mm -hmm. the two things go together. Well, you've just mentioned authority, Ian. Uh, how does the Protestant claim for the authority of Scripture test what comes before it in the medieval period? Well, I mean, th this becomes the heart of the debate, of course. The heart of the debate in many ways becomes the question of who gets to say what the truth is and is church doctrine revisable on the basis of Scripture reading? Now, of course, the famous issue that really kicks off the Reformation is the issue of indulgences, for example. Does the Pope have the authority to issue indulgences, you know, to help people through purgatory and so on? Um, and the question of whether such ideas are in the Bible or not then becomes a broader discussion about which other ideas are really in the Bible. And so the question of authority is, is a big deal. And you see the, the Council of Trent, the Counter-Reformational Council of Trent within the Roman Catholic Church explicitly uh, addressing this issue and denying the possibility that, that you can read Scripture in a way that's at variance with the teaching of the, of the established church. Hmm. So the early Protestants map out some of these central ideas to their developing doctrine of Scripture, which, as you say, is very much in tune with, or echoes at least, um, claims, arguments made through the centuries up to this point. But mm -hmm. does that, is that doctrine of scripture settled? Is it safe? What happens to it in the centuries after the Reformation? Well, what happens immediately is that the, the Protestants themselves begin to take that off in rather different directions. So one of the things I'm trying to demonstrate in part two of the book is that there's more than one way of thinking about this question of the authority of Scripture in the 17th century and, for, and going on from there. 
And it seems to me there are better ways and worse ways of dealing with it. So some people begin to take the view that the Bible is a kind of encyclopedia of all knowledge, that what God wants to talk to us about through the Bible is basically everything. Mm. And this leads certain segments of the Protestant population off in a way that really opposes Scripture to developing modern science, to developing modern political systems, anything modern, really. Um, but that's not inevitable, and other people are doing doing something very different. And I think these other people are far more in line with Luther and Calvin and so on than than, than the first group I just mentioned. Hmm. So, if we come to the nineteenth century, late nineteenth century, the emergence of Protestant fundamentalism, for example, mm-hmm. that's often seen by those involved in it as a recovery of central claims to faith or to scripture or to the qualities of scripture or to the proper approach to scripture. How would you test the rise of Protestant fundamentalism? Well, I mean, I think like everything else, we have to test everything against scripture, of course. And I, from my point of view, I'm all for fundamentalism, if we mean by that, emphasizing the fundamentals of the Christian faith. But that's not typically what people mean by, by the word fundamentalism. What sure. they mean by it more often is that that second or rather that first um, strand of Protestantism I mentioned, whereby you have a very wooden reading of Scripture, you do think it's an encyclopedia of all knowledge, and you do tend to then read it in ways that are very difficult to integrate with other knowledge that we believe we possess scientifically in, in other ways as well. And so I think you can see the rise of modern fundamentalism, not so much as a recovery of the Reformation, but just as part of the continuing departure from important aspects of it. That's what I would say, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping really to persuade people that this is not the best way of standing in line with the Reformation, actually. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Is, is is the rise of something like Protestant fundamentalism or that wooden approach to scripture or the sense of scripture as a wooden thing, is that is that in reaction to or is that echoing other things in culture at the time? Well, I mean, I think it it's, I mean, often this, historically, this arises in part out of those great revivals, of course, that, that are, are going on. And, and the revivals are wonderful things, but if they're not followed up with good Christian education, of course, as we see even nowadays in the world, then you get people in their enthusiasms going off in all sorts of directions that really perhaps they shouldn't. And so you you are getting um, you're getting a reaction against the pressures of of modernity, and what you get is a kind of circling of the wagons approach. And it's it's understandable as a temporary stopping point. People feel swamped, they feel insecure, they feel as if they're losing their identity, and they circle the wagons. And there's nothing wrong with circling the wagons as a as a temporary security measure, if we can put it that way. But as a long term strategy. It's really not a good strategy. And, of course, that very much maps on to the situation we find ourselves in at the moment, where I think you have the same pressures. And fundamentalism offers people a very black and white alternative that is ma- makes it easy just to cut through the whole swathe of complexities of modern and postmodern life. So I understand its attractiveness, but I just don't actually think it's a very s- secure position to, to take a stand on in the end. Well, the third part of the book that you've written, um, The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture, it lists uh, a number of chapters which deal with 
modern or, or, or contemporary approaches to reading of scripture, source criticism, form criticism, uh, rhetorical criticism, structuralism, post-structuralism, etc. Um, what, what is there in, in that um, very helpful um, summation of, of modern approaches that is useful or not useful to someone wanting to pursue uh, the kind of literalism that, that you would encourage? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I, this is part of my um, attempted encouragement of conservative Protestant people not to adopt a bunker mentality with regard to modernity and postmodernity, but to look and see and make good judicious assessments of what's going on rather than just reject everything up front. So insofar as modern and postmodern biblical scholarship is saying things about the text that appear to be true, it seems to me incumbent upon us as, as people who you know, hold to the truth that we must somehow be able to explain how these valid insights are to be integrated into our larger approach to the Bible. So, you know, I don't think that the 19th century German source critics are at all correct in their analysis of the Pentateuch, for example. I think there are many problems with it, and I think these are widely recognized in the academy nowadays. But the idea that there are sources behind the Bible is a biblical idea, right? The Bible mm -hmm. itself tells us that the authors, at least on some occasions, used sources, written sources. So that idea can't be the problem. Um, you think about something like feminist criticism. In many ways, feminist criticism is, I think, a legitimate, strong uh, pushback against very kind of lacking in sort of unthoughtful male kind of Bible reading that has not even noticed the woman in the Bible sometimes, much less commented on uh, these kinds of issues. So what I'm trying to encourage is a much more thoughtful, reflective and less fearful um, approach. I mean, if, if the gospel is true, then we ought to be able to, in principle at least, we ought to be able to demonstrate how all the minor, smaller truths of the world are integrable with the larger truth with a T. And I don't think we should be fearful. I think we should be confident in these areas. Hmm. Your book, in some ways, is an argument for tradition, isn't it? Um, how would you respond to someone who wanted to make the case that your position was reactionary in some way? Um, well, I mean, what I would say is, first of all, I would certainly agree that I'm reacting against what I think are bad ideas. Um, but reactionary implies knee-jerk kind of emotional response, you know, not considered, not based on argument. And I, I would certainly push back against that sort of description of what I'm doing. Um, I mean, the reason the book is 700 pages long is because there are lots of arguments in it that need mm -hmm. to be unpacked in footnotes. So people will not be disappointed if they're looking for arguments in the book. They're, they're going to find plenty of them. Um, so I would say that what I'm trying to do is to offer a constructive way ahead for Protestants who really do still believe, as I do, in the authority of the Bible, as the Bible is our canon, our measuring stick for, for doctrine and Christian practice. But I would like to offer the most constructive way I can of, uh, of saying that, holding to that, uh, moving out from that to other areas like science and history and so on. I don't think that's reactionary. I think it's... Uh, 
I think it's constructive. In fact, I, I would think that a couple of the other positions that I've outlined that I'm not in favor of are much more clearly reactionary in the proper sense of that word. Hmm. Ian, many of the listeners to this podcast will come from traditions other than the Protestant tradition that you prim principally engage with in this book. Um, does your book have anything to say to them? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's true that it's focused on the Reformation and, and all of that, but the Reformers themselves, of course, believe that what they were doing, what they were attempting to do was to reform the Western Church. It wasn't, it wasn't initially about splitting away from anything. It was about reforming the, the, the church at large. And I still think that that's what Protestants in their right minds should be about. Um, so I'm not, at the end of the day, I'm actually not, even though it may appear to, that I am, I'm actually not offering, uh, you know, a book for Protestant hermeneutics. What I'm actually arguing for is the right way of reading scripture for a Christian. Um, and that includes Christians of other, you know, uh, persuasions and, and commitments, not just uh, Protestants. And as you know, one of the things I try to demonstrate in the book from time to time is the, the the very interesting ways in which the official Roman Catholic uh, position on Scripture has, in fact, over the course of the last um, hundred years or so, moved much uh, more into line with the Reformation perspective. So you won't find official Roman Catholic documents uh, advocating for allegorical reading, for example, with any great enthusiasm. I mean, they, typically they'll find a place, but they'll also warn against it. And uh, it's interesting to me that at precisely the moment when the official Roman Catholic position is becoming more reformed, we have these Protestants pushing back in a very medieval Roman Catholic <laughs> uh, direction, which is an ironic kind of uh, ironic reality, it seems to me. Good. Well, Ian, we've taken up a lot of your time today. So before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment, what your future plans might be? Yes, um, I'm, uh, I have a sabbatical leave coming up in January and I'm going back to Germany, which is one of the places that is the place my wife and I love to spend time and we're very accustomed to it. So we're going back to Erfurt. We've been there twice before and I'll be writing a book, I hope, or beginning to write a book on a particular hermeneutical question that I think has become very important for us in the world, which is the whole business of why groups, uh, individuals in groups, um, use, uh, take upon themselves the identity of Israel, what the hermeneutics are that inform that, and what kinds of outcomes follow from these hermeneutics, um, as a way of, you know, getting into the question once again of how ought we best to read the Bible, but taking a particular question now that is of enormous political, economic, social significance, and, uh, of course, uh, the way that many Christians have taken on the notion of Israel historically, it's often ended in bloodshed and horror. Mm. Um, so are there ways, I think the New Testament urges us to be Israel in very proper ways, but the question is, which are the good ways, which are the, the right ways, and which are the wrong ways? So that's what we'll be doing between February and, and the end of April. And then We'll be uh, following on immediately on to uh, a, a Reformation tour that, that I'll be leading, which will take people through all the major Luther sites. I'll offer lectures on the period and the places we're visiting. We did this before in 2017 in the year of the 500th anniversary, and uh, it went very well. So 
that will be uh, happening again from April the 28th to May 8th. And should you have any listeners who are interested in this, because it's open to anyone who would, who would like to come, they can get onto the Regent College website and track this down by putting Luther or my name or Reformation Tour into the search box. And I'd be delighted to hear from anyone who who was in, who might be interested in doing that. Well, that sounds fantastic, Ian. I hope it goes really, really well. Um, you've written a formidable book, The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture, ferociously learned, um, full of substance and matter. And I want to say thank you for putting that together on behalf of everyone uh, who's going to read it. Thank you also for coming on to the show and talking about it. Thanks for your time and take care. Great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to everyone else for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. Thank you. Thank you.